humility was one of the marks of yogis. They wouldn't say, hey, I'm in flow all the time. Isn't that cool? I, I did this practice and that. Nor would they say, if you do this practice, you'll get in flow. They didn't give a damn about flow. Flow was an epiphenomena. What they cared about was, are you compassionate? Are you kind? Are you um, free of attachment? Those were the metrics that mattered to them. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, for organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio. Welcome to today's episode with an absolute legend in the academic world, in psychology, and that's Daniel Goleman. And if you haven't heard of Daniel Goleman, well, I'm shocked, but Daniel Goleman has pioneered a couple of fields within academia. First off, the work on emotional intelligence was done initially by Daniel Goleman. He wrote the book, emotional intelligence, which has sold millions of copies. And over two decades since that book, Goleman has written other amazing, really well-known books and done lots of incredible research around emotional intelligence and leadership. He's responsible for the emotional intelligence model on leadership. He's written books like Primal Leadership, books like Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence. And then more recently, he has done incredible work in meditation, looking at the impact of mindfulness and meditation on the brain. And that's resulted in books like Altered Traits, which is about how science reveals the way in which meditation changes your mind, your body, and your brain. And Daniel Goleman was a real treat and pleasure to speak with. He's been a hero of mine and Stephen's for many years now. I think you're going to love today. We talk about flow, how it impacts the brain. From Daniel's perspective, we talk about his work on emotional intelligence. We talk about his daily routine, which I really loved, and lots more. It was a joy to speak with. You're going to love this episode of Flow Research Collective Radio. So let's dive in. Daniel Goleman, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Really, really great to have you here. Huge amount of our clients are huge fans of all the amazing work you've done over your your long, incredible career. And I want to just start off with a simple question that I'm sure you've answered many times, but that I think is important to start us off and standardize terminology, which is just a brief either definition or description of EQ or emotional intelligence. Sure. And let me start by saying thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. And uh, emotional intelligence is uh, basically uh, being intelligent about emotions. In my model, and there are many models of emotional intelligence, the one I like includes self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, why you feel it, how it impacts what you do, self-management, putting that to use by noticing when you're in the throw of a disruptive emotion and knowing what to do about that, or marshalling positive emotions, positivity, resilience in the face of setbacks. Third part is uh, empathy, knowing what other people feel, and then putting that all together to have effective relationships. Nice. That's a really, really helpful breakdown. So a lot, a lot of our audience, Diana, a lot of the people we work with are leaders in organizations or sports mm -hmm. teams and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about how emotional intelligence comes into leadership and then the different styles of leadership that you've looked at as well. Sure. Well, let, remind me to get to styles because I've got a lot to say about the first we'll part of styles. your question, which, uh, you know, I've gone around the world talking to groups and one of the things I'd like to do is ask them to tell me about in one word 
the worst boss they ever had and the boss they loved. And invariably, it doesn't matter where I am, you know, Brazil or Singapore or wherever, you get the same picture. The leader people love is emotionally intelligent. It's someone who can manage their own emotions, who doesn't blow up at people, who, who stays positive, who keeps people focused on their goals, no matter what else is going on, who's adaptable and agile, who uh, stays positive in the face of, you know, whatever gloomy thing happens today. Also, the, the outstanding leaders are tuned in to the people around them. They know what people are feeling. They know why people are feeling that, and they know what to do about it. They uh, are able to, to coach. They don't dismiss people as they are. You know, They see that everyone can develop further strengths, can grow. They're able to um, guide and, and actually inspire people. They don't hesitate to wade in and settle differences, manage conflict well. Uh, those are all attributes of a most intelligent leaders. And I'm just finishing an article for the Harvard Business Review, looking at 25 years of research on emotional intelligence and leadership. And it shows very clearly that a, a, an emotionally intelligent leader gets high performance and is a high performer. Mm-hmm. Then there's the question of styles. I've looked at um, six classic leadership styles. And what's interesting about the data is it includes anonymous evaluations by direct reports of what it's like to work for that leader. So there's one of the very positive styles that people really appreciate is a leader who can articulate a shared vision, something that inspires that leader and also people themselves. That gets a lot of loyalty. It gets the best efforts out of people. Being a coach or understanding that a leader, one of the tasks of a leader is to help people develop further strengths. That kind of leader also creates a very positive emotional climate. A leader who uh, asks for people's opinions, particularly if a decision affects them, very positive. Uh, that's a consensus, consensual leader, and also a leader who knows that having a good time together is not a waste of time. It means that we'll be there for each other when things are down. Then there are two leadership styles that often go off the tracks. One is uh, what we call a pace setter. It's someone who very often was an outstanding individual contributor, you know, like a super software engineer or whatever it is. And then they get promoted to head a team or a division, even a company. And they don't understand the other styles of leadership that I've just mentioned. They just lead the way they got so good themselves. And they're often perfectionists, which means they drive themselves. They uh, you know, they want to do 120%, not just 100%. But they look at other people through that lens. And the problem with perfectionists is they're very self-critical. And as a leader, they're very critical of other people. They see what people do wrong and they tell them very clearly, you really screwed that up. But they don't see what people do right. They don't encourage them. They, they don't praise them for doing a good job. And so that tends to, uh, as you can understand, have a very negative impact on the morale, on the emotional climate. And then there's a really old style leader. It's the command and control, do it because I'm the boss. I say so. And these leaders you know, lead by ordering people around. And in this day and age, that just doesn't work. So what we find is that the best leaders can manifest four styles or more as appropriate. So, you know, in, in an ER, in the emergency room, it's very appropriate to be a pace-centered leader or command and control to tell people what to do. But in other situations, and usually we're in other situations, it's not that helpful. So that's, in summary, that's my take on leadership styles. Great breakdown. And it's interesting you mentioned the pace setter. That's definitely, I know for a fact, that's something that our, our clients struggle with a lot in particular is being extremely productive as an individual and being able to, you know, do amazing amounts of work in a day or whatever, and then building a team and then still feeling this kind of attachment to their own individual productivity rather than actually being able to 
kind of expand their awareness to the productivity of the whole team, which is obviously going to be much greater than their own. Yeah, well, if everyone on that team is as motivated and competent as you are as the leader, you'll have a fantastic team. Teams are usually not like that. Teams need, uh, you know, these other styles of leadership. And I have a colleague, Vanessa Druskat, at the University of New Hampshire, who studied teams and performance. And she finds through uh, many different data sets, interesting, that the team which exhibits emotional intelligence at the team level is the most high performing. And, and this is by whatever metric makes sense, you know, cubic meters of polyester fiber produced in a year or whatever the output of that team may be. How do you measure emotional intelligence within a team? So she has a, a way of doing this. And what she finds is at the team level, there are uh, norms, ways of habitual ways people interact on a team that market as emotionally intelligent. So one is they're transparent. They know who's good at what and who's not so good at what, for example. They have a lot of psychological safety. When Google looked at their best teams, they found that the number one characteristic of those teams was a feeling of safety. It's okay for me to raise this difficult issue because that's the way this team operates. It's another norm of a emotionally intelligent team. Uh, they celebrate wins. They take time to appreciate when they've done well. They uh, have empathy for the rest of their organization. They know who they need to depend on for resources and they know what to do so that they have a good relationship with that group or that other team or whoever it may be. So uh, Druscat has, uh, She's written on this on the, in the Harvard Business Review, too. She has specific characteristics at the team level of emotional intelligence. Dan, how do you recommend people go from a leadership style where I think a lot of people don't even know exactly what's wrong with their leadership style, but they just know it's not as good as it could be or anywhere mm. as good as it could mm. be. Uh, it's difficult to even know exactly what it is that's wrong. And if you do, often you're able to solve it faster. So that's not usually the issue. But, you know, let's say someone's listening. They know they're not leading as well as they could. And as a result, mm. the team's not producing as much as they could. How do you go from that state through to identification of, you know, the, the leadership issues through to actually developing up, you know, a really effective world-class leadership style? Yeah, I'd recommend to such a leader that they get a coach. And that the coach be competent and uh, really knows this area as well as every other area that the leader needs for, for whatever uh, position they're in in whatever sector. So often that's someone who is from whatever sector you're in who's left the business world and become a coach. Do you folks do coaching, Flow Research? We do. Has it happened? <laughs> Yes. As it happens, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, because I feel that a coach can observe and assess an individual leader uh, in a, a very detailed way. Uh, for example, I have a, an inventory for coaching and leadership development called the Emotional Social Competence Inventory. And it evaluates a leader, both in terms of their self-rating and then 10 other people whose opinions they value and trust, who know them well, uh, rate them anonymously and they get that data aggregated. So you get a profile. I, we measure 12 competencies of the in the emotional intelligence domain, like adaptability, like uh, emotional self-management, empathy, and so on. And then this gives you, like when you go to a doctor for a physical, you get your lipids and your cholesterols, and you know you get a profile of things that are in the normal range or very high and so on. So you get the same kind of profile, but for leadership competencies. And that will help you as a leader with your coach uh, zero in on where you think you could get the most benefit from developing further strengths. And I encourage people to do it one at a time. And um, I also think it's important for a leader or a coach to ask a coachee this critical question at the outset, do you really care? Do you really want to go through all this? Because it's going to take a little time and a little effort to work on this and to change deep habits, essentially. 
a flow pertinent question that I've been thinking a lot about. Your research on meditation, Richie's research on meditation, a lot of the stuff you talked about in Altered, Altered Traits, which I thought was such a spectacular book. Hmm. Wow, what a great book. Thanks. Um, shows that meditation skills are transferable, meaning the focus you develop on the mat ends up transferring over to how you do business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the research is very, like, overwhelmingly clear on it. There is an argument in flow research about whether or not flow is a focusing style, thus trainable, like meditation, or if it is completely task-specific, meaning the flow I get into while skiing is not going to impact the flow I get into while riding. I fall under the category that the more flow you get, the more flow you get, that you're training yeah. a focusing style. I was just wondering if you had an opinion on that based on, on the meditation research. I do have an opinion on that, and I'm not sure. It's supported by the meditation research. When Chicxulbahai did his original research on flow, he talked about how the domain within which flow is likely to emerge is where your challenge, the demand, meets the top of your skill set. I believe that there's another door to flow, and that's through attention, focused attention. He does say that one of the characteristics of the flow state is that your attention is 100% focused. Meditation trains attention. In fact, I would say from a cognitive science point of view, put the belief system aside, whatever it may be, every form of meditation trains attention in that the universal basic instruction is focus on this, your breath, this image, whatever. And when your mind wanders, bring it back. And one of the bits of research that we looked at um, when we reviewed the top research on meditation in the book Altered Traits showed that experienced meditators had strengthened the connectivity for ignoring distractions and staying focused. And you can see why, because this kind of mind training is explicitly about learning to let go of distraction and bring your mind back to the focus. And it strengthens connectivity in the neural circuitry for concentration. And there, there are many converging measures that suggest that. So let's say you're starting out in mindfulness and you're paying attention to the breath. The instruction is, you know, watch the full in-breath and the full out-breath. And when your mind wanders and you notice it wandered, bring it back to the next breath. That's the fundamental instruction. And it's just like going to a gym and every time you lift a weight, every rep makes that muscle a little stronger. Every time you bring your mind back, presumably the neural circuitry for focus is making it stronger. So having said that, back to your original question, I think that uh, the more focused you are and the more expert you are, the more likely flow is to emerge. I am a terrible skier. I'm a less than novice skier. Uh, skiing is not a way I would get into flow. It's a way I get into high anxiety. So for you, it's a way into flow. Uh, but that's because you have expertise there. So I think flow emerges in a combination of expertise, having your chops down for whatever the challenge is, and then being able to put your full attention there. It won't happen without pay, if you don't pay attention. For sure. In fact, there's work. Michael Posner, in a really early article in, on attention, maybe even back in the 80s, Hmm. I think pointed out back then that he felt that mindfulness, this was probably, uh, well, no, you guys had already done your original page. You'd written your dissertations by then, but it was, this was before anybody had gotten into mindfulness, but he pointed out it's a side note in one of his papers on attention. Yeah, really? says, I, I think meditation would be good training for flow. Oh, he and, said that? Yeah, it's just a line. It's just one line. That. And it's like, well, really, <laughs> this is long before he put uh, out like the cognitive neuroscience of attention one or two or any of those for him. came out. Yeah, he really saw that coming. And we certainly have in all our work, both for emotional regulation reasons, because obviously if the challenge skills balance matters and the amount of anxiety you have in your, in your system can block flow. And also for the focus training, we've long talked to people about mindfulness as one of the great prerequisites to, train, to getting more flow.
Well, I don't know if you notice, but in the book Altered Traits, we show from the data, which is very strong and accumulating as we speak, that the neural circuitry that helps you concentrate also helps you calm down. So as you train yourself to become more focused, you are also ipso facto training your neural system or physiology to be more relaxed and calm. Is that a parasympathetic nervous system response or is it a lowering of norepinephrine and cortisol due to nitric oxide? Do you have any idea what the physiology, neurophysiology behind that is? You know, off the top of my head at that level, I'm not sure I could give you a definitive answer. I probably could look it up. I'm sure you could look it up too. It's totally fine. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to take us in a totally different direction sure. for another question. My original mentor was Dr. Andrew Newberg when he was at the University of Pennsylvania doing brain imaging spec work on. So, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about how radical it has gone from, I remember back in the 90s when Yach Ponsep published Emotional Intelligence and suddenly emotions for the very first time were like a serious topic mm. for neuroscience. Mm. And it was a revolution. Emotions are real. We can talk about them. And consciousness study was still at that point maligned, right? We, we sure. hadn't, Christoph Koch hadn't done his work. When you think about kind of where you started, right? There were, I believe, three papers written on meditation before you yourself and mm-hmm. Richie wrote mm-hmm. your dissertations to where we are now and how, how much is, did you expect to see this much change in your lifetime? Do you think we have so much farther to go that we're barely, I mean, of course, we're barely scratching the surface. I was just wondering how you would rate our progress into these areas. Yeah. So when uh, Richard Davidson and I were doing our graduate work at Harvard, uh, there, as you point out, there were basically no real, I think there was one actual study, but it wasn't in a peer-reviewed journal. And then there were two anecdotal reports. Those were the three articles. I, I, I heard you tell the story that one of them was by uh, the, the guy who put a hot test tube on a single subject and poked him with a hot test tube to see if he would react while meditating. That was one of the three. Yeah, that was one yeah, of the three. That was with a yogi. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this, so this single uh, subject basically, study. you know, from standards now, it was pretty pathetic when we started. And uh, what was interesting was when you track the year-by-year totals of peer review articles on meditation, the curve is almost exponential. It's astounding. Well, you're up to like 7,000 or so, 8,000. 6,000 when we did it, and it's probably more by now. Uh, So it's become a huge research field. No one has cracked the nut of the hard problem of consciousness, how how the mind might arise from the brain or might not arise from the brain. We don't know. So we have a lot to learn. I think that the more research on meditation, the better. There are no good longitudinal studies, for example. They're correlational. They're brain scans. Um, We looked at three tranches of meditators, beginners, long-term. Beginners were up to 100 lifetime hours. Long-term was 1,000 to 10,000. And then Olympic level, the yogis who had done 12,000 to 62,000 lifetime hours. If you do a three-year retreat, which is traditional in the Tibetan system, you get credit for 10,000 hours. So 62,000 is a lot of hours of meditation. And what we found was that their brains are different. They function differently from ordinary brains. And what it suggests is that there's definitely a there there. We just don't know yet how people get there. We know from a traditional point of view. We don't know from a scientific point of view. Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time, space, and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We would be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. Two questions. We both related to this one more tangential than the others. One, it's not really a question. We have been using that work um, especially the long-term meditators work 
to try to develop, uh, we've been trying to develop a way to basically determine people who have had high flow lifestyles, very, very high flow lifestyles. And we want to look if repeated access to flow produces foundational changes anywhere near what we see in meditation, which is one question. And we've been poking at that, but we're still working on the questionnaire to help identify that, which is interesting. I don't know if it's going to get us anywhere, but I want to poke at it because I'm curious. Sure. Um, I don't know if it's actually going to reveal anything that's worth a damn. One question off uh, what you said earlier when you said, you know, the studies earlier weren't rigorous. How, in terms of the rigor we're now applying to consciousness, meditation, et cetera, et cetera, are you satisfied? Do you think we're where we need, we need to be with it? Do you think it should be more rigorous? I've heard people all over the map on, on this one. I tend to be fairly happy with what's going on. I was just wondering what you thought. Uh, I think that there's so many gaps in what we understand about meditation from a scientific point of view that a lot more research is needed. We found out of those 6,000 papers that a lot of them were very poor, sad to mm -hmm. say, poorly designed. Didn't you throw out your own early research as well, by well, the way? I, I have an entire chapter attacking my uh, dissertation <laughs> research. <laughs> well, for one thing, way too early. We had no brain scans. You know, it was all uh, peripheral measures, heart rate, sweat response, and so on. And there's lots of problems because they're peripheral. Yeah. And you don't, they're not central, central being the brain itself, the central nervous system. So uh, at any rate, yes, I think that there's lots to learn from scientific point of view. I also think we have a lot to learn from the traditional disciplines. For example, how did those yogis get to be so different? They know one of the metrics, and perhaps you can use this in your flow, is how do people react when things go bad, when life throws big problems? That's the metric from a traditional point of view. Do you have equanimity or do you blow up or do you lose it? Being in flow a lot, you know, you would want to separate out is because I have a lot of money? Is it because I don't have a day job? Uh, is it because I do have a day job that I love? Is it because I have a deep sense of purpose and meaning that makes everything I do part of my flow, even though I don't have a lot of money uh, and I, I face a lot of difficulties? There's a, lots of variables there. Very interesting question. So good luck on that. Chick Set Me High did some very interesting research big study, like 5,000 kids in a high school, and they, mm -hmm. they looked at they looked at some of these questions mm -hmm. on economic status and flow mm -hmm. and things like that. And it was lower income students had more flow than higher income. So it was mm -hmm. inverted. Non-white students had more flow than white students. It mm -hmm. was inverted from, I think, what most people would have. It's an interesting study. It hasn't been replicated, but there were 5,000 original subjects. So you can kind of look at it and go, yeah. okay. So I immediately bad. think of tiger moms middle-class or upper-middle-class parents who pressure their kids to do better and better and to schedule extracurricular activities. If you're going to get into an Ivy League school, you've got to have this and this and this and this. And those kids are very anxious, not going to be in flow. Yeah. And by the way, uh, I think that there's a zero correlation between epinephrine that measures of anxiety and flow and a good correlation between cortisol, oh, which yeah, gets you going. Yeah. So what our research is looking at is it looks like there's a there's a little bit of norepinephrine release at the front end of flow. The locus coeruleus does seem to be activated at the front end, releasing norepinephrine in the system. And there's good physiology work on cortisol that shows that you get parasympathetic and sympathetic coactivation, and that um, there is some cortisol in the system, but it is not an overwhelming amount. It's like That's right. in that nice right. shaped curve. This is yeah, Karina it, it, Pfeiffer's work. It's enough to get you going. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And not too much. And you're right. I, in most of everything we're looking at is much more uh, dopaminergic in terms of how what's driving it. All right. I'm going to take us off flow to that. I remember my other. Uh, oh, other no. I, I want to see oh, your research. Have you written about this? Uh, uh, we are writing about it right now. We're hopefully going to publish this one later in the year. Oh, um, good. Cool. We've been okay. looking at flow state onset. What, sure. what are the neural dynamics of flow state onset? So that's what we're Yeah. So let me just tell you that the people that I've met in life who are in flow as far as I can tell all the time, are yogis. That was a question I was going to ask you. I get this question a lot. 
neurobiologically, it seems that it appears that flow is a cycle with different changes underneath each state and that, that living in a flow state is not possible at all. So people ask me a lot, is living in permanent flow enlightenment? And no, like permanent flow would be maladaptive long-term. Well, Planning I guess it is- depends how you define flow. But I would say, you know, I was with Ram Dass's guru, Neem Karoli Baba. I would say that he was a yogi. He also had, uh, uh, he was a householder too. And as far as I could tell, he was in a state of um, ease and loving kindness all the time I observed him. I don't know what he was like when he was home or whatever, but he was always there. I've been fortunate enough to meet three or four very uh, highly regarded Tibetan lamas. And I would say the same of them, although each of them had their unique personality. So I think that um, if you're looking at business executives or you're looking at people who live in the West and have complicated lives, you may find one thing. If you look at people who have lived basically simple lives that have you know, few obligations and where people can mm-hmm. devote most of their life to working on themselves, you might find something different. That's, that's my a, impression. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. What was it about these yogis that gave you that impression that, you know, they were in this sort of flow-like state? And what were some of the sort of pr- ongoing practices or, or habits or things like that that they engaged uh, in? All of them, all of the people I would say were in this category would never talk about themselves or their practices, ever. It was, they're just totally humble. One of them was a Tibetan yogi meditation master who, this is for example, would when people came, anybody came, he touched their forehead. In Tibetan culture, that's like jaw-dropping because every other Tibetan teacher would touch them on the head, not touch forehead. Touching foreheads means you're, I'm just like you. So humility was one of the marks of yogis they wouldn't say hey i'm in flow all the time isn't that cool i I did this practice and that nor would they say if you do this practice you'll get in flow they didn't give a damn about flow flow was an epiphenomena what they cared about was are you compassionate are you kind are you um, free of attachment those were the metrics that mattered to them so my, uh, you asked what made me think they were in flow or what gave me the impression? Well, you know, I traveled with some of them. I saw them in difficult situations. They never got upset, for one thing. They're always at ease. They were contagious. There was kind of a contact high when you're with them. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Larry Brilliant, who was, uh, he's an MD. So Larry was uh, with a bunch of us who were with Neem Kroli Baba. And he said something I thought was very astute. He said, I always felt that he loved me. But what really was the surprising thing was that when I was with him, I loved everybody else. It's that mm. contagious. It's <laughs> mm. a great way to describe it. Yeah. Amazing. Next question, Dan, I'm curious about is, yeah, what you see being then the intersection between emotional regulation or, or even emotional intelligence, obviously they're somewhat distinct, and flow? I have a, a hunch, and it goes like this. The worst, most powerful distractors are our own emotions, far more powerful than externals. Back in the day when you could do this, sitting in Starbucks, focusing on your computer, on something you're doing, some big important thing. It's not the person at the next table who's distracting you. It's what happened the other day with that email that didn't get returned. Or why did that person say that thing to me? In other words, it's our rumination, our emotionally loaded thoughts that are what take us away from what we're doing. So... When you look at the emotional intelligence model, that has to do with self-management. In fact, emotional balance, that kind of self-control, being able to handle your disruptive emotions is a key part of emotional intelligence. 
So uh, there's a reciprocal relationship between full focus and emotional distraction. If you're distracted, you're not focused. If you're focused, you're not distracted. And I believe, as I was telling Stephen, that full focus, 100%, 110% focus is a doorway to flow. But you have to combine that with expertise. In fact, when you talk to people at the top of a game, like Olympic athletes or you know, uh, world-famous golfers, they'll tell you it's a mental game at that level. Because everybody's done the whatever it is rehearsal and practiced to master the moves. Now it's your mental state that makes the difference. It's interesting. You keep bringing up expertise. I've wondered for a long time. I've seen no research because there's no good longitudinal studies on flow or anything else like that. So you don't have anything like is flow going up in conjunction with expertise. So a lot of people say, oh, yes, you need expertise for flow. The question I start asking is, well, how much expertise do you actually start? Like at what level have we automated enough of the skill that we can start combining, you know, so, motor programs, Stephen, motor um, action programs and things don't, like that? Don't you, don't you think that's a function of the demand or the challenge? Uh, if you have relatively low expertise, relatively low demand might be a good match for you. If you have very high level expertise, than a very high demand. I, I remember I was talking to a jet pilot. He said, jet pilots are selected because they're in the top 99 percentile of reaction speed. He said, we live in a zone where we get into flow in a zone where other people would be out of their minds with anxiety. Yeah, so, the, the Navy SEALs will tell you the exact same thing. And I think you're right. I'm just wondering about like, and you could test this because, you know, Chick sent me high pointed out years ago, People have forgotten about this, but he pointed out in a lot of his early work that one of the most common flow states on earth is reading. And you could sure. probably right. test right, you could probably test people's reading level and expertise on a subject, you know, that might be a way to look at them in parallel. But, but think about this. When I was at the New York Times, we're told to write at the eighth grade reading level. So if you're an eighth grader, uh, you know, and you're a good reader at the eighth grade level, and what you're reading is at the eighth grade level, then there's a nice match there. So then maybe you get yeah, into no, that's slow what reading. I would mean is like you could you could actually because reading is something that is so qualified. We've got the levels. You sure. could actually start. To oh, yeah, I see. I think we're right. saying the same thing. Yeah, then. we're saying that. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're right. Saying, I sure. was just, that's I, fine. As you were talking, uh, I was just thinking about what do we actually mean by expertise? Because it's still a question that I don't think anybody's poked at it in any well, way. It's, yeah, it's a movable target. You know, the the sad myth of 10,000 hours yeah. of practice. Yeah. Yeah, which is a distortion of uh, Erickson's yeah. data. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, he found a dose-response relationship, the, and it depends on the task. If it's memorization, it's 300-some hours. Yeah. I met him at a uh, – we used to both attend this uh, high-performance conference at the Santa Fe Institute. I argued in Rise of Superman a couple other places that frequent access to flow can accelerate the path to mastery, and we see that a lot. And when I first met him, he was – he just – from the distance, I heard so – you think flow defeats the 10,000 hours. It was really funny. Uh, <laughs> he was cracking me up. Uh, we, talk, we talked about it. He was like, yeah, I also don't agree with the 10,000 hours. He was why we talked about it. Do you think enlightenment is a real thing? Do I think enlightenment is a real thing? What do you mean real? Well, I don't even know. I So... It is a thing, but it's a, it's a, a real it, thing. It is I don't a real know. Thing. Does okay? Does enlightenment have a neurobiological signature? Uh, does something have to have a neurobiological signature to be real? I don't know. I, well, let's just start with the. the I don't. That's not even a fair question. Uh, does something have to have a neurobiological signature to be real? No. Oh, let let me put it another way. It's interesting to me that yogis talk about ultra subtle energy systems in the body and how those uh, flow, using flow in a different sense of the word, mm -hmm. as being important for reaching, I'll say, higher states. And you could call that enlightenment. Would those necessarily have a neurobiological signature? I don't know. Would Davidson now is studying, this is interesting, studying something called tuktum, 
Tukdam occurs with a highly evolved meditator who dies and whose body does not decompose for a long, long, long time. It's seen in the Tibetan system as a sign that some subtle energy system persists because they have mastered that system. Does it have a neurobiological correlate? I doubt it because they're dead. They're brain dead. Has somebody measured this, not these non-decomposing bodies? Uh, they're trying now. It's, it's a rare wow. event. It's a, wow. a very rare what event. A weird, what a wild thing. Okay, so you make a fair point on that one. But you, we do believe, you do believe that these subtle energies would be measurable even with technologies we may not currently have? Or do you... Theoretically, they might be. But as you point out, we don't have yet the ability to assess them. There may be a brain state. Davidson found some similarities among his yogis that differentiated them from you and me. I don't know about you, from me, anyway, ordinary people. Uh, one of which was very interesting. Gamma synchrony, right? The gamma synchrony finding. But here's the problem, Stephen, is that our measurements are idiosyncratic. If you look at the history of measurement, brain measurement and so on, the newest measurement tends to be taken as the end-all and be-all of whatever it is we're measuring. And then, lo and behold, someone comes along with a new assessment that measures, you know, electromagnetic patterns and whatever. And, oh, then that's the hottest thing. So if we can measure brain state differences in people who are Olympic-level yogis, and those differences differentiate them or, or distinguish them from people who haven't done that practice, then we can guess that the difference that we see in them has to do with the practice. But because there's no longitudinal data, we don't know if they weren't like that from day one. Right. That's one problem, as you know. Anyway, it's fun to think about this. Yeah, thank you, thank you for indulge, indulging my super geeky questions. Uh, I have one more. I have one more question to indulge on that note. Uh, Dan, what, what, just for folks who are listening, how would you describe the qualitative or experiential sense of that kind of enlightenment-like state that, that you were saying is a thing, even if it's not a real thing? Are you saying um, in people that I've known who yeah. seem to be in that state? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I did say that they seem to be at ease in every situation, no matter how difficult or troubling. They seem to be very warm-hearted, very kind and caring. Do you have a sense of what their internal experience is, though, in terms of that kind of long-term persistent enlightenment? Is it a sense of well, no self uh, or, or whatever? And, and yeah, Leon, so, what, uh, th- there's this predicament that I can never know your internal experience. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Brian, you told me Dan was going to know my internal experience. <laughs> he lied to me. Damn it. <laughs> he promised. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the literature says that they have equanimity, they have compassion, they are adaptable. And from an emotional intelligence point of view, they would be at the high end of the emotional intelligence curve probably from the point of view of flow research. They're at the high end in that the name of our book, Davidson and I, was Altered Traits. It's not just a state that comes and goes, but is a trait of being. So when you do research on people who live lives of flow, more or less, they would, I would suppose, end up being at the higher end of that measure. I'm going to take us on a radical detour for my final question. So this is George Valance research that came out of the Harvard Adult Development Project. One of the things that I really sort of shocked me in, in the research is that there seemed to be what, lack of a better term here, what I would call emotional development thresholds in adult development. One of them was if you hadn't figured out how to sort of align passion, purpose, values with what you do for a living by age 40, you had a lot of difficulties afterwards. And by age 50, if you hadn't forgiven people who had done you wrong, it really impacted creativity among and, and well-being afterwards. From your research into emotional intelligence, first of all, are those the only thresholds? Do we have any idea why they exist? Are they actually time-locked? Is that Was that just a random artifact in this data? Do you have any idea? 
you know about the weird phenomenon in research, the bias of studying white, educated, and intelligent. I forget what the R and the D is. Yes. Uh, if you study Harvard graduates, but he did. Studying... He studied. There were those two groups, right? One was yeah, Harvard the, graduates, and, and one the other was were the people in Somerville. Right. Yeah. So Somerville was a working class, and then there were the Harvard grads, and he put those two samples together. And uh, both of those samples are very idiosyncratic. I would not generalize to universals from that data. It's not a representative sample of anything. They're both convenient samples. They happen to have access to the data from the Somerville study, the uh, working class Boston neighborhood adjacent to Cambridge, where the people go to Harvard. And uh, those are not representative of any general population that I know of. So they may have found in that data that there were thresholds for this or that. It's a very interesting concept, but I wouldn't universalize it for a minute. Important safety tip. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Be careful. All right. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh-huh. However, you know, if you went to a fancy college like Harvard and you read the, the Valiant data, uh, George Valiant or Valiant, I forget. Yeah. Didn't you go to a fancy college like Harvard? I did. Okay. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> then you can uh, assume it probably applies to people like yourself. And there are a lot of people who buy books who are in that subset of the population. So, yeah. Two questions left. Sure. Out, that's okay. I know we're a little bit yeah. over. Um, so you've it's talked okay. a little bit publicly about how at times you were pulled out of flow as a writer due to the, the news vortex. So, yeah, I'm curious as to what your own non-negotiables are for establishing flow for yourself as a writer in your work, in your research, oh, yeah. okay. and in your own daily practice. Sure. Great question. So man. what I like to do every day after breakfast or after tea is meditate a lot. And then after that, I like to write because I find that in that circumstance, writing comes very easily. And I can focus very well. Time goes very quickly. You know, these are indicators, perhaps, of flow. I feel very absorbed in what I'm doing. I suspect I get into a flow state or a microflow. I don't know what the technical indicators are. When you say I meditate been, a lot, how much is a lot? Would you, before a writing session, how long would you meditate? Well, uh, when I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, it was probably a half hour or an hour. Now that I'm in lockdown, I have more free time. So it's more time. It's off until lunch, for wow. example. Yeah. Meditate from breakfast to lunch? I skipped breakfast. I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do have tea. And, and, you know, it's not continuous. You know, I might do some yoga. I might look at the news. I might do this or that. But it's an, an open period where theoretically I could meditate. Anyway, it's a combination of writing, which is what I do. That's my expertise. Writing after sitting uh, that uh, suits me well. Gets me into flow, I would say. Nice. I love that. That's great. Um, and then the final question, Daniel, is uh, one that we like to ask all of our guests here at Flow Research Collective Radio, which we call the, the research genie question. So if you could click your fingers and instantly have the research get done in a hypothetical world to answer any question that you have, what would that question be? Yeah. So as I indicated earlier, if I could get any research done, I would love to see a longitudinal study of the trade effects of meditation. Uh, and this would require three groups. It would require a group of people who are dedicated to meditation, uh, require a, a group equivalent and demographically and so on, who do something else which is active that they have a positive expectation about, an active control group, and then a standard control group of people who are also demographically equivalent or equivalent in whatever dimensions seem important, uh, who do nothing in particular just live their lives. And I'd like to see that study conducted for 50 years 
And uh, I'd love to see it uh, done with brain scans and any kind of measure that we could think of uh, that might be pertinent and see where those three different groups end up. I find it interesting that you chose a meditation study over our emotional intelligence study. They may, over, they may be overlapping in the, yeah, in the I, same I, thing. They're but, quite interwoven. You didn't ask that question. What's the relationship between emotional intelligence and meditation? <laughs> All right. What's the relationship between emotional intelligence and meditation? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> it just popped into my head. I, like, you know, I like. Where did it know. come from? Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about the abilities, the domains of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, reading other people's emotions and putting that all together, you can see that meditation is general fitness for emotional intelligence. It is self-awareness by definition, and it makes people better able to manage their disruptive emotions particularly. And also, if you do the kind of meditation, for example, loving-kindness meditation, you become more empathic and kinder, and you have a more positive impact on people that you you relate to. So I would say that it boosts emotional intelligence in general. Thank you for asking. It's a lovely <laughs> answer. Thank you for answering. Daniel, you've got a new podcast out that I would I would love for folks to learn more about if you could tell everyone sure. more about it. It's called First Person Singular. I'm hosting it with my son who uh, has done a lot of audio work. Uh, it, you can find it at uh, by searching for, for first-person plural podcast or going to Keystep Media, one word, keystepmedia.com. And it's emotional intelligence and beyond. It gives me a chance to explore in depth and with experts in different fields, uh, things like what really makes us happy? Uh, what about, uh, can we teach this to kids? What are the basics of well-being? How does that fit with emotional intelligence? These are some of the questions that I explore. Uh, and uh, it, it lets me just go where my interests take me and take listeners along with me. Great. I really recommend everyone listening to, to check that out. And where else, Daniel, can people support your work or, or find your work or learn more? Uh, I have a subscription-free newsletter at LinkedIn. If you want to keep up with my current thinking in a that. different way, yeah. Other than that, I'm at a point in life where I'd rather do less than do more. So I don't have a lot of places for people to connect with me. I have a website, danielgoleman.info. Uh, if people want to contact me or have me come and you talk to You can also find group. the podcast through the website, correct? I hope so. I don't, I've never looked. I don't know. <laughs> you can find the podcast through the website. Trust me. I looked. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad one know. of us is paying attention. Yeah, I, I had no idea. <laughs> if what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.